0: The following is a special edition of Rick Flynn
1: Presents. Hey everybody, I'm so grateful and blessed to be here with Rick today and with all of you. I'm looking forward to discussing my book and uh, my journey. And my book is Triple Jeopardy, Three Strikes But Not Out. So I'm just ready to get started and let's get it on. You're listening to
0: Rick Flynn. With a shout out from London Town, it's Rick Flynn presents... (laughs) And now, ladies and gentlemen, your MC for the affair, Rick Flynn. Hi, everyone. Welcome on in. Oh, do I have a live one on the line here today? Indeed, this lady is the author of a book. It is entitled Triple Jeopardy, Three Strikes But Not Out. Now, I know what you're thinking. How can that be? The government of the United States, the forefathers of this country, under the Fifth Amendment, there is a clause in there that says that a human being cannot, if they're a citizen of the United States... Cannot be prosecuted twice, that's double jeopardy, for the same crime. Double jeopardy. You're alleging, Ms. Rita Ali, that you are the victim of what you call triple jeopardy, which in other words is being prosecuted for something three times, which is illegal. And I'm going to bring you in here. I want to introduce you because you're a fascinating lady and you're a lady that has got so much going on in your life. And a lot of people have stated that this world is actually in a better place because you were in it based upon the work that you have done to help others. But Dr. Rita Ali, come on in here, Rita, and say hello. It's a pleasure to have you with us.
1: Well, hey, Ricky, my brother, it's so good to be on with you. We share so much of the same interests and and know some of the same people. So this is really hits home for me. I'm very happy to be chatting with you today. Let's just take it from here.
0: Absolutely. Now, if I could go forward with this thought that I just mentioned, I know that there was a trial at one time in your life. And this book is not only about that, which is why it's called Triple Jeopardy, Three Strikes But Not Out, but also in your book, you tell basically about your life in general, which is it's a fascinating life. You've helped other people in your existence on this earth. Would I be correct in at least saying that much?
1: Yes, I have. It's just part of my upbringing. You know, I grew up in a very good environment. I actually, at one time, I remember living in the house with my grandparents, which if people had that experience living with their grandparents along with their parents, it's such a community type of supportive environment. So you grow up with always receiving support from others, as well as developing that within yourself to give to others. So that's just part of who I am. But it, it was definitely fostered by the fact that I had such amazing grandparents and an amazing community that I grew up in and amazing parents and siblings. And so support is just something that I became accustomed to. Encouragement, people telling you to do the right things, living decent lives, wanting for others what you want for yourself. So it's just innately a part of my development. And I'd like to think that I have made some differences or have helped some people. It's It's been a very important thing to me too, to always help someone, regardless of what my station is in life. And I did so even when I fell to the most debilitating time in my life, serving prison time, I was always a helpful person in the incarcerated systems that I spent time in. So it's just part of what I do.
0: I do not know at all how long that you were uh, on vacation for. Let me just say that. How many years did you serve when you served?
1: Well, in terms of actually serving, the first sentence was a year of house arrest. And that may sound easy, but it is easier than actually being incarcerated in a facility that's away from your home. But it's still incarceration. You're still very limited as to what you can do. But again, it's better than being behind bars or being in, in a lockdown facility because you do get to go to your place of worship once a week and some people, people are actually permitted to go to work to a job. So in that respect it is closer to living a regular normal life. So the, that was the first sentence and then the superseding indictment which is where I was charged with the same crimes number one that I never committed any of them but I was still I was found guilty the first time and then sentenced to a year of house arrest, along with my two children, by the first judge, and that was uh, Judge John P. Fulham. And then the second sentence was the superseding indictment that they brought the same charges in and then charged me with one other incident that was unrelated to the original charges, but the same charges were brought back in again. Then I went before that judge and I am never, Ricky, I mean, just from us, you know, the, the brief encounter that we've known each other, you know that I'm not going to say I did something I didn't do. I'm like. You in that respect, like we both, you know, I'm not, I'm not gonna say I did something I didn't do. So, you know, that integrity factor for me that was important. So, I would not say that I committed a crime. But now I'm broke because you know all of our resources, economic resources. What has I haven't lost? I, I still have no income coming in. So, I decided I'm gonna plead nolo contendre for that. I Meaning, I'm not saying I. For those who don't understand that term, it means you're not saying you're guilty. You're not saying you are. You're just leaving it to the judge to decide. And a. Hundred percent of the time, they're going to just find you guilty. Of course, they're going to go along with the, what the prosecution said because you're putting up no argument. But I knew that there was no argument that I could put up at that time. I didn't have the um, I didn't have the legal defense to actually even put up any argument, and I, it, it was a losing battle anyway. So I pled nolo contendere. That judge sentenced me to 24 months, and that was of incarceration. And then I went to Danbury Federal Prison, where at the time they had just overturned something with the federal system where the amount of legal, um, the amount of halfway house that you could get people was six months, and I think in some cases even more. And so I was probably not going to get six months because even people who had done 13, many years, uh, more years than I had months sentenced to, they weren't getting but two months. For some reason, they love to hold on to you. Just, they, they hold on to you even though they're overcrowded. They've got people sleeping outside of dorm, sleeping in hallways, and putting up makeshift dorms just to keep people there. Well, I guess that's how they get their money per head. But so I was actually called in to by the counselor one day and said she had good news and bad news for me. And I'm like, so what's that? She says, well, the good news is that we're going to give you six months halfway house. And I was like, really? Like, Probably she said I said well what's the bad news I'm thinking a bad news from home or something she said that we're going to lose a bright spot in a dark place
0: well and and she said that to you yes oh counselor. well now I would take that as a compliment
1: it was it was a it was a compliment um I had a good rapport with all of the officers and I had a great rapport with the women and actually the CEO the day that I was leaving to go to the halfway house a bunch of the women were hugging me and we were crying because it's a it's a it's a, it's a Emotion that I'm leaving a place where I've come to take these people as family, and you know you're 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 part of their their highs and their lows, and you, you, we're all one unit. And and I'm leaving good people behind. So it's sad to see people go, but at the same time you're happy to see them go. But if you're the one that's actually it's your turn to go, you're sad because you're still leaving some very good people behind. So it's um and then there's rules that you're not supposed to communicate with anybody if you're a convicted felon and I don't know how that's going to work out for America since we incarcerate more people than most countries combined in the world so I don't know how that they can continue with rules like that because almost everyone that I've talked to and you know Rick you know I go around and I, I speak and um I have a charity and that I represent and I remember growing up never knowing anybody that even went to prison I heard of jail that people went to jail somebody got maybe drunk and the police took them to the drunk tank or something like that. But that was even rare. And now everyone that I speak to, they know of someone or they're impacted in some way by a woman, particularly, well, first men, of course, go prison, but by women going to prison. And in the last two decades, the incarceration rate of women, and I really want your listeners to pay attention to this. In the last two decades, the incarceration rate of women in America has gone up over 7 How is that even possible in this land of the free? So all of a sudden, women are, well, men still outnumber us, but all of a sudden, women are going to prison for low-level crimes. A lot of it has to do with drugs. Someone gets addicted to drugs, maybe they they break into a laundry machine, they steal coins or whatever. But what happened is, is through recidivism, they they don't get really the help that in, in incarceration while incarcerated that, that would help them. And then many of them are thrown right back into the same environment that caused them to start drugs or to sell drugs for someone or whatever. And so that's why I formulated my, my charity. So like to, to, to help formerly incarcerated women because they need resources once you get out. So I don't know if I'm just
0: going on here. No, no, no. You're fine. Your charity that you establish is called We the Number Two Matter. We Two Matter, which is a nonprofit which provides resources for previously incarcerated women. We Two Matter. And what are the resources, for example, that you're providing these women?
1: Well, I don't do it by ourselves. So there's a conglomerate. Of various organizations that I work with, like Van Jones's organization. I'm, I'm an empathy network leader along with other people that are part of Dream Corps. And they've been well established. They put in bills to try to get laws changed and things like that and provide resources and some resources like housing. For example, if a woman maxes out, that's what it's called when you don't leave prison, having to go to a halfway house or being on probation. Some people actually don't want that because they feel as though it's a trap because they're going to be sent back to prison for some type of violation. So once some people actually opt to just I'm just throwing my time and I want to be done with the system. I don't want to have to answer to a probation officer or whatever. So if you opt out, you have no resources there. There's there's nothing. You, you just get your maybe $20 to catch a bus and you're out in the boondock somewhere and you catch a bus and you're going and um, maybe the bus costs you $16 and now you got $4 left. So you're going to get it. When you get back to your location, you don't have family. You don't have friends. You don't have anybody. You don't have a place to go. So where are you going to go? You know that crack house house is always going to accept you. I so would, you I would spend, say, yeah. Yeah. So are you going to spend $4 on a burger? Or are you going to yeah, spend yeah. $4 on a vial of crack and then, or maybe turn trick in the crack house to, to to get your fix on? So those are the type of things that women are confronted with. So what we do, we work with another organization, an amazing organization called Standing United. And they we work with judges and probation officers and all types of people in the legal system, as well as organizations that provide housing and organizations that provide clothing, and the health department. Uh, we just provide these resources for the women and put them in touch with them and network with these different organizations that do have resources for them that can empower them to live productive lives. Many people don't even know how to go about getting public housing or getting funding towards public housing. So resources information We also provide vouchers for mental health. We're not doing the mental health, so I don't want to confuse people. We're not the all in all, but we have resources with, with organizations that give us the vouchers for clothing. And then we do fundraisers that we actually do like a nice brunch for the women. And my uh, son-in-law, Mike Tyson, he launched our first major fundraiser. And and also Bobby Brown was there and Metta World Peace and uh, Zab Judah, another fighter. Um, so just the fact that these women saw that someone like Mike Tyson and these celebrities cared about them. Like that might seem like a small thing. Like for example, we have Mother's Day coming up. Mother's Day is a horrible, horrible day for women in prison. So if you, your audience or I mean your listeners, um, send someone a Mother's Day card. But it might be a, it seemed like a small gesture to you, but to, to women who are incarcerated away from everyone that loves them and have been there for years and no one's visited them. People have promised to come and see them, and this Mother's Day, they're looking for someone to come and see them and no one shows up. It's so debilitating and, and heartbreaking. And that's going back to We Too Matter, that's one of the reasons Rick that I had to start We Two Matter because that was the worst day in my entire life. Um, Mother's Day, one of the saddest days. And I've had siblings die, uh, parents die. Um, Like anybody, I'm 75 years old, so I've had, you know, I've I've had my share of uh, heartache. But that nothing impacted me and hurt me like that. To see these women get all dressed up, as dressed up as you can get in prison and to give a little more background on or to create the the scene of what it's like to be incarcerated, you have hardly nothing in there. You don't have a, a lot. So whatever we have, we share. So where I was at Danbury in particular, you were allowed to keep a wedding band and you were allowed to have a pair of gold hoop earrings, whether they were real gold or not, but you were allowed to have that. Most people didn't have that and most people didn't have a uh, wedding band, most of the women. So this day, is Mother's Day is coming so some of the women have been in there for 15 years and they've never had a visit on Mother's Day. They've never even seen some of their children that were taken away from them because they had the child while they were incarcerated. So years and years of being promised that someone's coming and they're going to bring their kids or someone's just coming to see them on, on Mother's Day. Every year the disappointment, but some of them still had hope this year that this is going to happen. So everyone in the, the compound is happy for them. So whatever resources we have, if you've got lipstick, you, you let them use that. Someone does their hair. If your uniform is better than theirs, and, and the reason I say that is because if you have a uniform and you've been in there a while, your uniform may be soiled or I'm talking about it's it's clean, but it's it's worn. And So someone with a new shirt or, or pair of khakis will, will let you wear theirs so that you look really pristine as you can going into the visiting room. So we help them and everybody's excited. They go up in front of that visiting room. They stand out there and they're so happy. And and I'm talking about when they go up to the visiting room, they strut like proud peacocks. And so They they linger outside and every now and then someone will pass them. Your your turn's coming. Your turn's coming. We'll we'll give them a high five. We're we're all happy for them, even though we're not getting the visit, but you're still happy because you feel like it's happening for you too. But then that clock starts ticking and it gets close to like four o'clock, and you know that that's the time that the visiting hours are going to be cut off, that nobody's coming. And I'm telling you, brother, to see those women walk back to that dorm, through that dorm, while in the midst of other women who knew they weren't getting visits, crying, moaning, and just, it's just such a horrible atmosphere. It's like you're in a mortuary, It's and they just walk back, and I'm telling you, they're broken. They're just over. They don't want to talk for the rest of the day. They're crying. So for me, that was an epiphany. I knew then that I had to do something to help these women, and the We Too Matter was birthed, that concept of it, from that experience.
0: Right. Now, who told these women in the very first place that you, you, and you are all three going to receive visitors? Was this their relative, for example, and then the relative at the last minute decided not to show, or what went wrong?
1: Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a pattern. Like, for example, um, my husband is a, a, a very well-known religious cleric. So I would go with him every now and then if he would go and visit a man in prison, they would request. And he had privileges because he would go in as like a uh, a clergy. So I would go with him to, to visit different people. And I remember going to prisons with him and the chaotic of the visiting room was always uh, well, how you, well, the processing where you get processed to go in to see the visitor. So, I mean, to see to see the inmate. That holding area where they're, they're, it's always crowded in there and people and voices overlapping and whatever. Sometimes baby mamas are arguing, this is my turn and almost fights break out and whatever in there. So, because so many people support these men. And so once you get into the visiting room, it's packed in there. It's like there's no room really. Just every seat's taken. Sometimes, more often than not, they have to terminate your visit because even, let's just say your visits could be two hours or three hours. They have to terminate it to maybe 10, 15 minutes, a half an hour because there are too many people waiting out there to get in to see their man a, a person that's incarcerated. Not the same. I've worked in, in the visiting room at Danbury and it's a big room. There would be maybe five or six women in there getting visits and they weren't the same women every weekend. So women have not traditionally gotten that type of support from men like baby mamas, mothers, sisters, aunts, women support men. So this is a consistency for the women. Now, they can find out from phone call because and which is another issue, like you may spend three dollars of your money that's on, on your book for a one minute phone call. So um, and I think you can talk up to 10, 15 minutes, whatever it is, and then it cuts off. But they have communications. And so maybe someone had told them on the phone, on a phone call, or maybe they got a letter or uh, a response back to their letter asking their mother or their or or their, their husbands or boyfriends to bring their children or someone has said, yeah, I'm going to come this time or whatever. But that's how they find out that and, and they know that um, or believe that that person that claimed they were going to show. Why they don't show. I don't know if anybody ever finds that out. Maybe they do when they call them and they give them some reason or excuse, but the follow-up is not something that was ever a a concern is the the fact that no one showed.
0: I'll be darned. Now, let me back up just a moment. I'm missing one link in the chain, I think. You mentioned your initial... Sentence was one year home incarceration. I got that. That would be one strike. Then you mentioned they came back with you on another judge, and he sentenced you to uh, whatever twenty four
1: 24 months.
0: Twenty four months home incarceration, right? No, or, no, or no, prison. no.
1: Danbury, Danbury Federal prison. And
0: Danbury is in Illinois.
1: No, Danbury is in uh, Upstate New York. Oh, okay, Not Upstate, upstate but, uh, New uh, York. Uh,
0: All yeah, right, it's, it's, that's no, no, two sorry, strikes.
1: Not, no, 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 I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry, Rick. Brother, no, it's in um, Connecticut. Oh, right Connecticut.
0: Of okay, yeah. no problem. That's two strikes. My question right. is, and what I'm missing is, I didn't hear the third strike. Where does the third okay. triple jeopardy that you're alleging, when did that happen?
1: Okay, let me take you back now, brother, to the first judge that sentenced me and my daughter and my son. Sentenced my, me to a year house arrest and my daughter and son to six months house arrest. The federal government appealed that that sentence because they wanted us to do hard jail time. They were so angry that that judge, the way that he talked to them and how he was very angry with the decision. And he did as best as he could because the federal government had guidelines. So he had to sentence us, but he actually deviated from the guidelines because he really believed that we were good people. And he never brought the government's argument, even though the jury did. So they appealed it. So while I was serving the the house arrest, And then while I was actually serving jail time, and so I served the house arrest then I served the, the, the jail time at Danbury the appeal process hadn't come before the circus yet they hadn't ma- made the decision on it so I leave Danbury federal prison go to the halfway house and I'm about a month away from all of this going away and the early one morning the counselor comes into my room taps on this iron bunk bed this metal bunk bed and wakes me up and, and startles me out of my sleep and I'm like what and she says Miss Ali you okay? I just want to check on you. And it's about 6 a.m. in the morning. And They never just come in the dorm and do that. And I'm like, why? What's wrong? And I jump up, but I'm still kind of discombobulated. And she said, you haven't seen today's paper, have you? And I'm like, no. She said, the Third Circuit overturned your sentence, meaning that the sentence of a year for me, house arrest, and the six months for my daughter, they served Third circuits overturned that sentence, and now you have to go back to the same judge that sentenced you the first time to be resentenced again. So that's where the triple jeopardy comes in. So now this is the third time I've got to be sentenced, and the second time for my daughter. So
0: I, I see. Now I've got it. Okay, and so then what happened?
1: To, well, so we go back to Judge Fulan, but we're cool. Like we know, like we're going to be fine because Judge Fulan he basically never wanted to put us in incarceration, so he's just going to make this all go away. But we have no money, really, for lawyers or anything like that. So my my daughter and I are before the judge, and we go through the process of you know the sentence. The the, the U.S. attorney, you know, they argue their point, and our, our lawyer argues a point for us. The judge sentenced me to a year and a day, and my my daughter to six months, but it's incarceration, and so now we're going to go to um, uh, what's the, I can't Alderson, uh, which is a West Virginia prison. So Kiki and I are very upset, but the judge says to me in court. He said, "Miss Ali, I implore you to appeal this, he said, because this is double jeopardy. Well, he meant for him because he sentencing me two times on the same thing. He said, this is double jeopardy.
0: And who said that? Um, the judge?
1: Yes, Judge John Fuller. Yes, it's all he part said of the record.
0: This, in in his opinion, was, double, was jeopardy. double jeopardy, which is yeah. illegal. So, now, you, yeah. whether you had money or not, you, you were supposed to be provided with an attorney attorney attorney. My question is, and this is an important one, Rita, what did your lawyer say when he looked at this and the man is an expert at constitutional law, I would hope, and he knows double jeopardy when he sees it, and he certainly knows triple when he sees that. Did he say, Rita, this whole thing is illegal, or did he not say anything?
1: Well, to Judge Fulham's credit, because I was really disappointed in Judge Fulham's. So was Kiki to, to realize that she had to be prison time and I had to go back to prison. We were very hurt. And the judge Fulham said, in, in, as part of the hearing, as he's closing out, the judge said that what he was going to do is he was going to <laughs> appoint us two court-appointed lawyers. And he appointed us two really, really amazing lawyers. And like they do this appeals and all that type of stuff. Kiki met with her lawyer. I met with our lawyer. We met with them at the same time. And we both came back with the same conversation that our lawyers said. We wanted to know why did Judge Fulham even give us the time and both the lawyers said the same thing. Like, that was a gift because Judge Fulham was bound by the fact that the courts overturned it and that I'm already a convicted felon. Kiki's already a convicted felon. So he was bound by that. He had to give us prison time, but he gave us the lowest that he could because he just wanted this to go away. Because at that time, he was about 85 years old. And and they said that, listen, this is definitely wrong and and it's definitely illegal what they did. Said, but we will appeal it because we're here for you and it's your decision. Said the same thing to Kiki. We will appeal it, but guess what? The government has already said that if we appeal it, they're going to appeal our Our appeal. And it's going to go right back to the same conservative uh, uh, Third Circuit court, and you will be overturned again. They're going to side with the government because it's political. And unfortunately, that's how our courts are political, he said. And this time, Judge Fuller may not be on the bench to save you, but you will lose. But we'll we'll fight for you, you know, because that's what we do every day. But we're, we're just telling you the chances that you'll 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 win almost none. Mm. So mm-hmm. we elected to just go ahead and do the time and get it get it over with.
0: Now, did you serve the entire year, or did they let you out early?
1: Well, I knew that I would only do about um eight months because I did a year. I mean, because I, a good time. I don't do vi I don't violate. So Kiki's was a, a firm six months, but the judge gave me a year and a day, which made me eligible. If it was just a a flat year, I'd have to do a year. But when he said a year and a day, it makes you eligible for good time. And the federal government gives you 54 days off a year. So I knew I'd get that off. And then I got too much halfway house. So I did approximately eight months.
0: Right. Okay. And so therefore, that's how we come down with triple jeopardy. If you would have said, no, I want to retry it. I'm going to go back. Would you at that point in time, the way you're looking at it, would you have called that quadruple? quadruple jeopardy if you
1: would have been quadruple jeopardy
0: yeah uh huh.
1: And the lawyer warned me that I would do a lot of years. We're uh-huh. talking about. And who warned years. you?
0: Your attorney?
1: Yep. That if they. If this Third Circuit overturned it, and I go before another judge that was really side with the with the U.S. attorneys and not try to give us, you know, the uh, leniency that I could be looking at 10, 15 years.
0: Oh my! Well, I'm not going to retry the case because if anybody is interested in that, it's in your book. But also in your book is a whole lot of other. things. Things which I'm going to get into. And we're going to do that not only today on this program that the audience is listening to right now, but we're going to hold you over and I'm going to bring you back next week. And next week, I want to get into your son-in-law and your relationship with him because he was one of the greatest boxers ever to step into the ring. They called him Iron Mike, and of course... That is the great Mike Tyson. He used to live, I'm sure you're aware, in the state of Ohio. He had a mansion here. Yes, he sure did. Now, it wasn't near where I am. He was probably five, six hours away. Uh, He was like in, in the greater Cleveland area. He was closer to Cleveland than he was Cincinnati. But I certainly heard about the fact I knew he lived in Ohio, and I knew that he had this beautiful mansion that he had here. And we're going to get into that and a whole lot of other celebrities that you as a socialite in the great state of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and you were helping People And the reason why this trial happened, let me just say they alleged that there was money being misappropriated for a school that you had established there to educate, I guess, men and women, not just women.
1: Well, no, it was children from um, preschool to 12th grade.
0: Okay, all right. It was a children's school. It was what they call in education a for-profit school. Would that be fair?
1: No, it's a nonprofit.
0: Oh, it was a nonprofit?
1: Yeah, the uh, program. I think that uh, where the conflicting narrative is coming in is that the, the Philadelphia Community College is where the alleged ghost employee scam was. So we had a school, the Sister Clara Muhammad School, which is a, an established Islamic school in Philadelphia, and we took the children from preschool on through twelfth grade, and it was in basically in in a pretty rough area. We had children from all over the city come because. We we had excellent academic course and many of our children graduated. They've gone on to Harvard, Yale. They're lawyers and doctors now. Some of them have even gone to Oxford and gone overseas because we had a very good academic program there. And we took kids that were basically thought of by some people as throwaway kids. So we had a very good program. And we were approached by the Philadelphia Community College, a representative from the Philadelphia Community College, a woman who was actually the lead defendant in our case. She represented them. Um, she had basically worked for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and had um, was in charge of this division of the adult education program in Pennsylvania for the Philadelphia Community College. So I was approached by her and she asked me if I would be interested in them having using our facility, classrooms in our facility, to have adult education classes there. And she offered $450 per classroom per semester. Semester. And I want to emphasize that that's per classroom, per college semester. The, the- Semesters are based on regular college semesters. So you have a spring semester, a fall semester, that's roughly about 16 weeks for each. And then you have two summer sessions that are roughly about six weeks per. So that's four semesters all altogether. So it was $450 per classroom for commercial space, which for 16 weeks, uh, for $450, that's like a giveaway. But our school was in a, an area of West Philadelphia that's like a, a rough area, like a hood, but we were like a beacon of, um, safety and and hope for the, the community, not just the Muslim community, but everybody there, we were all like close. There's a, a big Christian church across the street, and then the Catholic Archdiocese was across the street on the other side, and we would do carnivals and um, all, all type of outdoor activities, and our facility would be open for different type of community activities like senior programs and different things like that, that we would just do for, for the community, and it was like that little hub of all of us together was a relatively safe area. So she asked me, would we be interested? And I said, sure, anything that helps the community. And so she wanted to know if, I would, if, if the community college could have another little area in there for their own, have a phone in their own little office. And I've said, yeah, I'm sure we can find space with so this huge build, uh, a huge building. And um, I'm not sure we can find space for that. So we didn't charge her for that. And then she said, well, look, so we have some flyers we'd like for you guys to give out some flyers. And if we can get one or two classes up and running and you need 15 people per class for them to say, okay, that they'll sanction having an instructor for that class. I'm like, okay. She said, so do you, can we leave some of the flyers and you give them out? I said, yes. Now, this is important because the classes that were offered were Arabic as a second language, which is really important to the Muslim community that you have a lot of Americans that have converted to Islam that were part of our community that didn't speak Arabic, but that's the language of the Quran. So we would always have Arabic classes at the school anyway. So now the community college offered that. Then they offered English as a second language, which was also important, too. We had a large immigrant population of Muslims that attended our mosque, so they would be interested in that. And then they offered ABD classes, which are, are classes where like math, science, things like that, a basic adult education, I think that's what it's called, and then GED classes, so help people get their GED, their, their diploma. And the other thing they offered was computers. Well, at that time, we're talking over 20 years ago, a lot of people didn't have laptops in their houses or whatever. They'd have to go to the library, whatever. But we had a computer lab in, in our facility. So we put out the flyers and I didn't personally put them out. She, she um left her in the main office and they put them out at Juma. Now Juma is the Friday s- service for Muslims like church would be for Christians on Sunday. But that's our Sabbath day, uh, if you want to call it that. So We put the well. They put the flyers out. uh, Someone at the school put the flyers out. She came back to me that Monday and said, "Oh my God, we had so many people sign up for classes. We don't have enough instructors. Do you think some of your teachers at the school would be interested in doing some part-time work for the community college?" I said, "I don't know. I'll put you in touch with the principal," which I did. I said, "And you guys can work it out." Now, if this is important, I had nothing to do with applications. All that was processed through the community college. So whatever process that they used to hire, to fire, or whatever, all of that was done through them. I never got one check for anybody. I never signed off for payroll. I never did any of that. I had nothing to do with none of that. The only thing that I ever received a check for was the rent. And that was at the end of the semester, I got a check for the rent. So anyway, the classes were going fine. By us having the school and the masjid in the same building, it's always open for prayer because Muslims pray five times a day. So the first prayer comes in at dawn. The last prayer comes in at um, at, at, at Maghrib. I mean, not Magh- uh, um The last prayer comes in at sun, when the sun, sun goes down, uh, Isha prayer. So the mosque is always open. People are always coming in. They're always praying. So that was different than, I guess, some of the sites because we were able to offer classes from 8 a.m. till 12. That's a morning session. The next session was from 1 till 5 p.m. Then the next section was Mon- and these are all Monday through Friday and then the other section was from 6 to 9 or 5 to 9 or whatever it was in the evening and then we had uh, classes that were on saturday and sunday 8 hours for both days and so we had classes a- a- around the clock so i think that that had a lot to do with the number of classes that we were able to have as well as the fact that um the muslims and the uh, different people from the community are always in and out of that building so the classes went up and running and then all of a sudden Out of the clear blue sky, I I, I don't even know anything's going on. I don't even know I'm under the schools under scrutiny or anything like that and I'm at home one day and someone bangs on my door and it's just real, really aggressive news person. Uh, Rita Ali, why did you steal $6 million from the community college? I'm like, what? I have no idea what's even going on. I I had no notification or whatever. So I find out through the media that I'm a a suspect in this scan, scan for a ghost employee. And so it goes on and every day for at least over a year we were repeatedly in the paper talking about we stole all this money from the community college the school went down it closed eventually because um every day they were out in front of the school and it was so much um drama. About it and, drama yeah drama, yeah and and i mean like 30 40 people outside my door every day newspaper newspaper and um newspaper, media we were on every news cycle three times a day in the morning the, the local news On the radio, everything talking about the Muslims who stole all this money. Now, I cannot say that it was because we were Muslims, but this happened right after 9-11. And I've never been called a nigger in my life by anybody white. Or I don't even know by anybody black. I've never been called that. But on our way to the court one morning, there were two white people, men in a car, and one looked like he might have been a younger white man, and then the other one, like maybe middle age. And my daughter and I are walking down, anyway, getting ready to go into the federal building, and the one on the passenger side throws out a cup of something I don't know, whether milkshake, coffee, or whatever, and said, "John Street nigger bitches" or something like that. And that was the mayor at the time. Oh, and he throws it out. He's the and one who threw it out. No, the, the 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 young white male on the passenger side of the car, okay, driving by, it threw a cup of coffee or a hot shot or something out at me and Kiki when we we're walking into the to, to the federal building. Right, because Kiki is your daughter. Yeah, Kiki's my daughter. She's right. And what
0: right. did he say when he threw it out?
1: Nigger bitches, John Street, something, just something. But you know, it's quick. He's riding by. But it had to do with the trial.
0: I see. It had to do with
1: that that he thought that we stole all this money from the community college.
0: Now, how did the media get wind of it? How did they find out to even accuse you of it? Who told them? defense. Oh, oh, really?
1: Yeah, the facts had to tell them because I didn't even know that we were even being investigated for for anything. No one knew.
0: So what did they have, undercover people in there that you didn't know about?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's a very important point. Now, when we go to actually go to trial, it comes out in the trial, the, the federal government's witnesses that were actually Part of the undercover thing to come to our school, it comes out that they visit several community college sites. And to when they were doing this, uh, this, this uh, investigation of um, like people not going, people getting paid to have classes at the school but not having any activity. The government's own witness said that the Sister Clara Muhammad schools, when they visit there as undercover, they act like they were students signing up and everything. That there were classes going on. That it was consistent with the program going on, wherein they had visited other sites that one of them was even in a house in North Philadelphia somewhere, and there was no signs of any activities going on, even though classes were supposed to be going on. The building was empty. The lights were out. They said, but ours was consistent that classes were going on. So that's when the judge, when he read the jury, read the, do ju- you know how he charges the jury? Yes. He's, the judge said, this is that first judge, John P. Fulham. He said, listen, I just want you guys to, uh, I just want the jury to understand that the case and the charges that these people were charged with is not the case that these that the U.S. attorneys presented. He said they charged these people and this woman here with running a ghost employee scam. Said everyone knows that if you go to uh, these classes and and they offer them all over in different states uh, for people to get their diplomas and so on. Said everyone knows that there's an unwritten rule in any college throughout the America that and I'm paraphrasing, but I'm very close to what Judge Fulham said. If you go to a class and you Student, you sit, you wait in the classroom 15 20 minutes. The instructor doesn't show up, you can leave, and then they don't, they, they can't mark you absent. The same is true for these instructors. They go to a class, they wait 10 15 minutes, no student shows up, they can leave, but they still get paid because they were there. He said, Now it was not. Rita, uh, Rita Ali's responsibility to monitor those to, to, those classes, to know whether students showed up. He said, and everybody knows that that's how these classes go. You may start off with, these are free classes. They may start off with 15 people, 20 people in there. And at the end of it, they may have one or two or sometimes no students showing up. He said, But that was not her responsibility. And she was not a person that got paid from the college. And even these other defendants here, as long as they showed up and they did the classes, they were entitled to be paid, whether the people showed up or they didn't. And they he announced
0: to this to the jury.
1: He said it up to the jury. He's charging the jurors. This is before they're gonna go into deliberation. He said, and I just want to emphasize that these US attorneys and all the IRS people and all these people over you see sitting here behind them, they do not want wear cloaks and they do not walk on water. And you are not to believe that testimony or take put more value on the testimony of their witnesses than you do on those of the defense. You are to do what to weigh the evidence. He said, but if you concur with me, you have to equip these defendants. He said, Rita Ali and these defendants.
0: Yes, yes.
1: They came back in less than an hour and found me guilty of twenty-seven counts.
0: My oh my
1: and I never signed one check. I never received anything but the rental agreement. That's all I signed, and that's what I received payment for.
0: Okay. Now you had your school, which was the sister Clara Mohammed School, and the yep. lady that wanted to rent the space from you was a representative of the community college of Philadelphia. You're saying she was their lead defendant. Does that mean she was the one no, she they was wanted? The lead.
1: Well, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. No, no. She was charge Along with the ghost and scam uh, employee scam, along with me and my children, it was like it, it was like we plotted it together. That's how oh, they brought
0: it. You were there. equal. They didn't want her any more than they wanted you. You were both equal in well, their actually, prosecution.
1: Right. Except she got her case severed from ours, so she didn't go to trial with us. Me, my daughter, my son, and her son went to trial, but she got her case severed. She had like severed really
0: means order. cut off, uh, thrown out. Yeah.
1: No. No. Severed where she would be tried separately
0: okay what happened to her if you know quickly
1: okay so she got um sentenced after i got out of prison and she had to go before the same judge judge fullman and according to people that were attended her trial she got sentenced to prison time too and to date she has not served one day in prison
0: that's because she probably has appealed
1: no she didn't appeal anything the 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 uh, u.s attorneys let her go because they never wanted her no they were out now why why
0: would they do that
1: well, I do believe that um, at the time the U.S. Attorney's Office was ran by Republicans. We were very supportive of Democrats. I believe it gets all the way. It always gets down to the, the um, national election for the presidency and when it's always Ohio, Pennsylvania and Florida. Those electoral votes count. If you take Pennsylvania, pretty much you are going to be the president. So after the Monica Lewinsky stuff with, with Bill Clinton and um, George. Bush came in, it was this moral majority thing that the Republicans were running on. And even though my husband and I, we've supported Republicans and Democrats, but this time we just happened to be on the wrong side where the power was with the Republican U.S. Attorney. So there was this this whole attitude about bringing in the moral majority stuff and, 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 and breaking up this hole that Philadelphia has on the Electoral College for the presidency because if you can't take Philly, you can't take Pennsylvania. So all All throughout the country, Democratic elected officials were being attacked. Just like it started off with them attacking my husband, the 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 African-American mayor there, John Street, who my husband was very influential in getting people elected. He was highly respected, and we helped to get John Street, we helped to get the governor elected, and and so on. So I believe that that was part of it, that it was political. And the woman who brought the community college, she had formerly been a high-ranking Republican, and so they took care of her, and they didn't take care of us. So we were considered to be the people that they wanted to get rid of. We just were having too much power. and the way, like I said, if you can't take Philly, you're not going to take Pennsylvania.
0: Now, didn't and, you allege at one time that perhaps this was religious discrimination against your particular religion post 911?
1: I'm not so sure that it was religious discrimination on on a broad sense, but I think that it made it convenient that that by us being Muslims because they came at us right after 9-11, which where a lot of people were angry with Muslims because this narrative was spread that, you know, Muslims were not devoted to our country and so on and so on. So a lot of people were very angry with Muslims. So I think that that was just an added bonus. I think it was just because we were Democrats or perceiving and we were helping too many Democrats get into office and they, they wanted to break that hole, that Philadelphia has on delivering or, 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 delivering that electoral college to the democratic president. Okay. So I just think that it would happen to be that, that's just added to it that, you know, um, we were Muslims too after nine 11. I don't think that that would have mattered as much if it had been before nine 11.
0: All right. Now I don't want to talk about this today because I'm going to bring you back next week. I want to ask you a question, but I just want you to answer it. Yes or no. I believe I know what you're going to say in advance. Anyway, isn't one of your your social running buddies that you knew of Billy Clinton?
1: Well, I mean not Or you
0: met him, or I met him, yes. Right. Yes. We'll go into that next week. Did was he respectful to you at the time that you were with him?
1: Oh my God, he was amazing. All I mean, right. This man charisma, he's amazing.
0: All right. Very well. We're going to get into that next week, ladies and gentlemen. The book is entitled Triple Jeopardy: Three Strikes, But Not Out. And boy, everybody can remember the name of your book, Rita. Three Strikes and Not Out. I don't know how anybody cannot remember that. Triple Jeopardy, which, by the way, it's an amazing title. Triple Jeopardy, Three Strikes but Not Out. It is the story of basically the life of my guest today, Rita Ali, the mother-in-law of one of the greatest boxers ever to set foot in the boxing ring, Iron Mike Tyson. We're going to get into that, Muhammad Ali, President Bill Clinton, and others. Uh, Michael Spinks, he was the brother of Leon Spinks, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't he? He was Leon's no, brother. What, what I remember Leon Spinks. Who is Michael Spinks? Michael Spinks is the one
1: that Mike fought. They were both Golden Glove champions. And right. Olympic Is, champions.
0: Isn't Michael Spinks, he would, he's related to Leon Spinks, isn't he, or am yeah, I wrong? Brothers.
1: They're brothers. They both were um, Olympic champions um, during the same era.
0: Right, there you both. go. They were brothers. I knew they were related somehow. We're going to get into all that. But Dr. Ali, if there's one thing, if you don't mind this, I want to compliment you on. And I've talked about it on this program when you're not even here with us. We've discussed <laughs> this with other guests. Yes, we have a good country in this great nation of ours. Yes, we have A criminal justice system in place. And I'm going to withhold my personal opinion about it because this is not about my opinion today. This is about what you said and what you said. And I'm going to paraphrase it. You said, yes, we have a criminal justice system in America that is the greatest in the world, despite everything that happened to you. You said, this is the greatest criminal justice system in the world. I'm paraphrasing. You said it's not perfect. It needs an overhaul, so to speak. We need to correct certain things about it, but that still does not mean that I'm not living in a great country with a great criminal justice system. Because, girl, I'm going to tell you this, if you and I would get on the airplane and fly to A, B, C, or D countries, I will show you systems over there that will make, uh, it'll make you sick to your stomach, what's going on. Certainly, we have a good system, but our system is not perfect. I at least commend you for pointing out the good in it.
1: Well, oh, thank you. I, I totally agree. Um I mean you, you, you did state it stated it well it's not perfect, but at least we have one. And and even in my case, they didn't get it right, but at least I had a trial.
0: Right. Other yes, cases, yes.
1: I wouldn't even have a trial.
0: And this is what these people ought uh, Americans ought to realize. When you go and visit these other countries, you're you, they take it like, Oh, I'll I'll be here and in, in this country or that country and oh how great that'll be. But when you're walking the streets of that foreign country, you're no longer under the auspices, if you will, of that American system that you're so used to. You don't have the freedoms that you have in this country, and you better recognize that fact. Uh, it's it's not a, all that glitters on that vacation may not be gold if you screw up. Will you go along with me?
1: Yeah, oh, absolutely. If, and, and maybe even if you don't screw up.
0: Oh, oh very uh, possible. Very possible. If
1: if, if, if you're charged with something. I mean, some, some countries, and I don't want to say uh, like a particular country, but I know of some countries where the um, h- holding place where they hold you in the incarceration are actually a cave.
0: Oh, I, I, I don't doubt that at all. There's no law over there that says they have to give you anything that's wholesome. And no. I've heard horror stories in this country of where they hold you yeah. and it's filthy dirty and and, and oh, yeah. rodents around and uh, just. To an absolute uh, uh, slime hole, if I could use that. True. And true. we have a country that's much better than that. But you know what? I think there are just some, uh, well, I think there are individuals that have a rather sick sense uh, that they enjoy seeing people suffer so the more filthy the more condemned the more these these certain individuals like it and that should not happen it should be we should clean this garbage up, and I, I don't know, I, I, I'm, I'm upset to think about in this country with how we treat the human life. They say that America stands up for the body of the citizen, the human life, a lot stronger and better than other countries where they could care less if you're alive or dead. So if, we're, if we have that reputation, why not get rid of this crap and this garbage in these cells and make Make sure that they shine. Make sure that they have a coat of paint. Make sure that there's killer of disease spray or whatever you want to call it and get the place up to par anyway. How about that?
1: Yeah, we're not talking about luxury. We're just talking about basic sanitary um, conditions. Yes. um, Oh, my. you, You know. Go ahead you know, so when you when you think about it in the broad concept that um, the way that people are treated in, in our judicial system and uh, and a lot of the unfairness of it You're almost left to think the worst. And I want to just emphasize that so many times when we even see what's going on with the hatred and a lot of the stuff against gays and this and that, so many times it it almost relegates us to a sense of hopelessness and despair that there's more evil in the world than there is good. And I would push back because there's not. Actually, most people, the majority of people are good people and goodwill people. But here's, to me, what I see the problem is that good people don't fight as hard for good as evil people fight for evil.
0: The evil people fight harder for evil than the good people people do for for good. good.
1: Yep. I believe there are more good people, but we can't just be good and be on the sidelines and not do anything. We have to raise our voices against evil, wherever corruption, we have to raise our voices. And collectively, that's how we make a difference.
0: Amazing. Rita, if somebody wants this book, tell them right now where they're going to be able to obtain it?
1: Pretty much anywhere where they sell a good book, Amazon.com the, the, a lot of them are sold on Amazon.com and it's just uh, there are a lot of books called Triple Jeopardy so you have to make sure that you put in Triple Jeopardy, Three Strikes But Not Out by Dr. Rita Ali. It's also on audio and if, I know Amazon is a link where you can get it on audio um, and, uh, I, and when you just type it in, other things come in. If you just type in, uh, if you just Google Triple Jeopardy, Three Strikes But Not Out by Rita Ali. Almost before you get to Rita Ali, it'll come up and you'll be able to um, get it that way.
0: All right. We are out of time, ma'am. I've already invited you back for next week. We know that we're going to talk about something completely different. And that is in your days of a social light, in your days of a radio personality and host in your days of all the other things that you have done, including promote boxing and, and all of these things, we're going to get into a lot of the people you worked with not the least of which would be the husband of your daughter. And that was, excuse me, that is one of the greatest boxers ever, Mike Tyson. I want to hear about him next week. Right now, I want to give you the last word, dear, and you tell anybody as we scoot out the door what you would like them to take from your book, and then
1: we'll say goodbye. Well, again, thank you so much, Ricky, for having me. I would like for you to take the fact that perseverance is something that I live by and it doesn't matter. And I get this too from my son-in-law. No matter how many times you get knocked down, what matters is that you have the will to get back out and never, ever count yourself out. Don't you be the referee standing over yourself, counting yourself out. You get back in there and you fight another day
0: perseverance. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of myself and our guest today, this is Rick Flynn. It's been fun, but I've got to run. Thank you to Dr. Rita Ali. The book, Triple Jeopardy, Three Strikes, but not out. It portrays what happened to her in her venture with the Sister Clara Mohammed School in Philadelphia and what happened in the negotiation and the subsequent when teaming up with the community college there of Philadelphia and what was alleged and so forth and so on. But yet, as I mentioned earlier, Rita, it's also about the celebrities you've worked with and other aspects of your life, too, in your book. Isn't that right?
1: That is absolutely correct.
0: Thank you, everyone. New shows every Wednesday. But I want to remind you, please come back and join us next Wednesday. There is too much going on in the life of my guest today, Dr. Ali, to where it will not fit in one hour. And she's done a lot for a lot of people. That's why I invited her back. Please join us next week. You're gonna have a great, great show. Thank you, everyone. And we'll see you next week. Good night.
1: Well, good night to you, Rick, and to all the listeners. And God bless. And I look forward to joining us again next week. This was actually fun. Thank you.
0: The preceding was a Rick Flynn production. This is your announcer, Chantal Marie speaking.